Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again today. May your Holy Spirit guide and direct not only what we hear, but how it resonates within us. How it really uh, pertains to us personally. Not so much what is said up here, but the way we hear it. And the way your Holy Spirit will guide us. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, not only today, but all the time when we are studying Scripture, so that we might truly get the message that you want us to hear. So we thank you for this time together, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we're going to be covering the last three chapters uh, of the letter to the Hebrews, 11 through 13. 13 is pretty much a conclusion, very brief uh, chapter. But it's interesting in a, in a way because uh, remember right up front in the early uh, one or two uh, classes, I talked about how the letter to the Hebrews is divided into three main portions and generally entitled as uh, Jesus Christ as priest, prophet, and king, or it should really be prophet, priest, and kings, because that's the order that they are in the book. It's interesting that um, there was an article in Catholic Register uh, by now Bishop Robert Barron. He's the one that uh, produced that great uh, series on Catholicism on DVD. If you don't have it, I would certainly recommend it. It's very, very good. And he recently be, uh, has become an auxiliary bishop of Los Angeles. But he brings out a in a lecture that he gave the same idea as in the letter to the Hebrews. The idea of Jesus Christ being our prophet, our priest, and our king or leader. Now, these terms are not used or in the book directly, or the letter directly, but that is the way that our Bible scholars and teachers and so forth have come to look at it. And what it is really is in this last uh, section, which is the section on leadership or the kingship of Jesus over all mankind, I think summarizes a great deal of the rest of it. So let me go through a little bit of how I see it, and I think how I would like you to look at it as well. In chapter 11, in chapter 11, the author goes back again to a number of very important people throughout the Old Testament. Remember, right up front, in the very first chapter, in the first couple of stanzas, uh, or verses, uh, the author says that in times, <clears throat> in times past, God spoke to mankind through various, uh, prophets, okay? Various people. And in chapter 11, uh, the author names uh, a number of those. Um, we, <clears throat> we start out with Abel and then Enoch. 
Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then there's a number of others. Uh, Sarah, Moses, uh, Joseph, David, Rahab. So he even includes a couple women in here, which in old Jewish writings was very unusual. Um, but the purpose of summarizing those people or talking about them is how God spoke to those people and all of them uh, were people who were very faithful to the one true God, whether they knew him uh, under the auspices of uh, Judaism or not. Because obviously Abel and Enoch and Noah uh, and Abraham were not uh, certainly aware of Judaism as a structured faith. But nevertheless, they were still true to the one true God. And that's what sets them apart. That's what makes them a speaker or a prophet. Remember the word prophet means one who speaks for God. It does not mean somebody who tells the future or fortune teller or anything. It came about later on that many of the things that these people spoke about did not come uh, into play or did not come to reality <clears throat> until the future. But nevertheless, uh, they spoke for God. And so they acquired the title prophet. And prophet doesn't really appear in the Bible until much later in Jewish uh, uh, writings. Okay, uh, And I don't want to go through each one of these people. I think you all know uh, pretty much who they are. But it's the point that is being made here is that the author is saying that all of these people, important as they were, are not as important as Jesus Christ is. And remember, the whole objective of uh, the letter to the Hebrews is to sort of convince and satisfy the misgivings, you might say, of a number of Jewish converts to Christianity because they were sort of waffling on the fence um, as to whether or not they should stay headed towards Christianity because of the persecutions that they were um, facing and the fact that Christianity at that time did not have all of the trappings, um, you know, the niceties that went along with Judaism, that is the ceremonies and the preachers and the synagogue or the temple, or any of that kind of thing, because they hadn't been developed yet. And so these people are saying to themselves, well, you know, kind of what's in it for me? If I stay with Christianity, I'm in danger of death. I've already been sort of uh, ostracized or kicked out of my own family, Jewish family, that is. Uh, and now I'm sort of here out on the fence alone. Um, and the author is trying to convince his people that the whole idea is that God has sent his divine son to earth to not only teach us and summarize 
all of the things that had said had been said by all of these other famous people in centuries past, but now he is bringing them into uh, a whole idea of completion, the completion of the first part of God's plan of salvation, and the most important part, of course, is Christ's uh, passion, death, and resurrection, which is the epitome or the culmination of the plan of salvation. And then it is up to us to take the benefits of that and move forward. And not only to take ourselves forward using these benefits of Christ, but to spread that news around so that others will join in with us and realize the benefits of the death and resurrection of Christ. We cannot sit alone here. And that is the essence of Bishop Barron's article here, is that we all have an obligation to be priests, prophets, and kings. Not in the sense that, uh, you know, Father so-and-so is, or Bishop so-and-so is, but nevertheless, we have an obligation. And that it's important that we kind of see that. So, with that, let me go through some of the writings here. But one of the things that I want to point out is the very first verse of chapter 11. This is a famous phrase or quotation that has been used by many, many people through down through the ages since the first century. And many of them don't even know where it comes from. That is, faith is the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. This is something that we should all spend a little bit of time on. What is faith? It's the realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. The whole idea here is that, remember, I had on here in a couple of weeks ago, the sort of um, little diagram or, or phrase that the experience of Christ, the experience of Jesus personally, for us, leads to faith. Faith then leads to hope. Hope leads then to joy. Joy leads to love. And love leads to holiness, which we are all being called to. And if you kind of think about it, this letter here, is holding out hope, not only for those Jewish converts who are sitting on that fence that I mentioned, but for all of us today, because we are all faced with 
the secular, secularism of society today. That is the drifting away of what makes God or what should make God the central point of our life. We've been sort of drawn away through technology and with uh, television and sports and so many other things uh, that we don't seem to have time for God. We don't seem to have time to really put our trust and our hope in God alone. And how empty our lives can be. I really fear for young people today who have not had a true experience of what a Catholic family should be. I remember as in years past, and I think most of you uh, more mature people, I don't want to use the word older, uh, remember the the fact that, you know, mother and dad said I had to be home for dinner so that we would have family dinner. It wasn't family dinner without all the family there. And Sunday was the most important family dinner uh, from particularly Italian families that I'm familiar with. You know, the afternoon family dinner began around 1 o'clock and lasted all afternoon and into the evening. Uh, and then you had more food later on, you know. Uh, but it was the idea of gathering together the most important part of your day or your week. We don't have that any longer. And it's a shame because I remember very fondly those dinners and times together. Uh, people today, oh, you know, they're engaged in so many different sports or activities of some kind uh, or working or the idea of making money uh, and they're drawn away from all of the true holy things of life. And it's unfortunate. And I think we should think about how can we bring some of that back. Maybe not all the way back to where we were before, but we've got to think about the important things of life. And that's what this book is really trying to tell us. It is not just geared for Jewish converts to Christianity, but it's geared for all mankind today. And as we begin next week with the letter of James, you have kind of the same thing. But it is not written for necessarily for Jewish converts. It's written for all mankind. And when you do read it this coming week, please don't look upon that as a duplication of what we've already covered. There are a number of similarities, I'll agree. But it's more important that we think about the letter of James um, as a way of Christian life that knows no time period and is really just as much meaningful today as it was uh, 2,000 years ago. But this idea of faith, uh, and it's interesting because Paul uses that in his letter to the Romans, chapter 8, and he says, 
in hope we are saved. But hope is not hope if its object is seen. How is it possible for one to hope for what can uh, we cannot see? I lost my place here. How is it possible for one to hope for what he cannot see? Means waiting, awaiting it with patience and endurance. Uh, it's it's kind of the takeoff on the on the same idea. Again, faith is a realization of what is hoped for and evidence of things not seen. Okay. The whole idea here of chapter 11 is this idea of all of these people in the past, and there's at least a dozen of them here mentioned, speak for God, but and they all of them have a good message. But Jesus Christ really came to speak because he is God. We don't say Jesus was God, even though we're talking about a specific period of time. It's more proper to say Jesus is God because he is alive and well and interceding for us in heaven. Any questions on any of this so far? I want to go to the last part of chapter 11, uh, beginning with verse 32 on page 47. Uh, it says, what more shall I say? I have uh, not time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, or David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, did and did what was righteous obtained the promises. They closed the mouth of lions, put out raging fires, escaped the devouring sword. Out of weakness they were made powerful, became strong in battle, and turned back foreign invaders. Women received back their dead through resurrection. These are all things that people of the past had done. Some were tortured and would not accept deliverance in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others endured mockery, scourging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawed in two, put to death a sword point. They went about in skins of sheep or goats, needy, afflicted, tormented. The world was not worthy of them. The world, that is, uh, people who did not think the same way as they did are not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and on mountains, in caves and in crevices of the earth. Yet all of these, though approved because of their faith, did not receive what had been promised. And that is not because they were uh, anything wrong with them. They did not receive what was promised because that was meant for the future. That was meant for a later time period. And yet they did what they did out of love for God and hope. Hope for their own salvation. 
Yet all of these, though because of their faith, did not receive what had been promised, God had foreseen something better for us, so that without us, they should not be made perfect. So, we are the result and the beneficiary of all of the great things that Christ did for us. Primarily, open the gates of heaven and make us worthy enough to come to God directly. There was uh, a point and one of the things that the Jewish people not only in centuries past, but even today, they do not have a sense of a personal relationship with God because they've always felt that uh, God was way up there somewhere and they were not worthy. And that has sort of carried down through the ages. And let me kind of explain where that came from. Just before God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, there were several times when he called Moses up on the mountain. And every time he would call Moses up on the mountain, there would be lightning and smoke and, you know, clouds and so forth and so on. That's where we get the idea of God is up there somewhere. All right? Um, and then on the third, uh, let's see, just preceding the time of God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, God tells the people through Moses to prepare uh, because in three days he is going to come to them in a very special way and that they are to wash their garments and so forth and that uh, he will appear on top of Mount Sinai, I assume, although it's not mentioned here, and they are not to come near the mountain or even touch it. Okay. It says, on the morning of the third day, there were peals of thunder and lightning and a heavy cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all of the people in the camp trembled. But Moses led the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stationed themselves at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was, that is Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, for the Lord came down upon it in fire. The smoke rose from it as though from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The trumpet blast grew louder and louder while Moses was speaking, and God answered him with thunder. When Moses came down to the when Moses came down from the top of Mount Sinai, no, I'm sorry. When the Lord came down to the top of Mount Sinai, he summoned, he summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up to him. Then the Lord told Moses, go down and warn the people not to break through toward the Lord in order to see him. Otherwise, many of them will be struck down. The priests too. Uh, who approached the Lord must sanctify themselves 
else he will vent his anger upon them. And Moses said to the Lord, These people cannot go up to the Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us to set limits around the mountain to make it sacred. And the Lord repeated, Go down now, then come up again. You know, the poor guy needed an elevator or an escalator. Then come up again along with Aaron, but the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, else he will vent his anger upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them this. And then he goes back up and he gets the Ten Commandments. You know, the poor guy, no wonder he died. Yeah. Hmm? Well, yeah, but Mountain Sinai is not that high. No. Yeah, well, and, and you know, on foot with sandals, you know, no. Yeah. The whole idea, though, is that the top of the mountain, God is holy, God is up there, and later it says, yeah, and I won't get into all those details, but later it says that the people told Moses that they didn't want anything to do with that up there. That Moses was their intercessor. And they would hear, listen to Moses, but they didn't want you know, to get too close to God. And that, unfortunately, has carried through, down through their culture. Uh, and it's become a very important aspect of their culture that they do not have this relationship. And it's important that we get over that, that God really wants to have a relationship. And you know, it's, if we experience God, it's not going to be in fire and smoke and lightning and all of that. It's probably going to be something that you don't even notice all of a sudden. It's not most of us are not privileged, you know, with an apparition like many of the saints have had. Um, but nevertheless, we can experience God himself in many different ways. Uh, I'll give you a ind- little indication. One night I was walking, as I used to, I was cooped up all day long in an office, and so after dinner I would go for a little walk, just to get some fresh air and so forth and kind of clear my thoughts and mind uh, from the day's activities. And as I was walking, for some reason or other, I was thinking about love, personal love. And I said in a way in my mind or heart, Lord, I want to be loved that way. And it was like, hello, I've been trying to love you, but you wouldn't let me open your mind and heart. And it was such a real thing that to this day I can remember exactly uh, the words and, and the, the place and so forth. Uh, because it was an experience that was intended to kind of wake me up and say, God wants a personal relationship with each of us. 
if only we would open our mind and heart and let him come in. But he's not going to force himself upon us. He's not going to force us to do anything. But gradually, if we are really drawn to him, then we will want to do whatever he asks of us. Excuse me. So, that is what the author of this letter is trying to get across to us. That not only the Jewish converts, but to all mankind down through history, that we have to open our mind and our heart to God in prayer. That's how it is done, in prayer. Not by saying <coughs> the rosary, uh, or a lot of repetitious prayers that other people have written, but a one-on-one conversation-type prayer. Remember anything and everything, when the mind and heart is lifted to God, can be, not is necessarily, but can be a prayer if intended that way. I don't know if you were here when a young man came into the the door here and sort of mumbled around. I knew who he was because I know his father. The poor man is mentally impaired. Um, and there's a, there's a history behind that. But not to the point where he can be institutionalized because he is a very troubled person. Uh, and so his parents are sort of I hate to use the word stuck, but they are. That is exactly what it is. And the father is extremely compassionate and helpful. Uh, And this fellow just follows him around like a puppy dog. Um, And this is a cross that really is difficult to bear. And yet the parents do so gracefully. Uh, they, father used to come in here to our classes, but he said that lately he can't because uh, the son is difficult sometimes and um, he can't leave him. So he's asking me to give him the CD so that he can at least get that much of it. Uh, of course, uh, it's a, I have it already for him. Anyways, that is what carrying our cross daily really means, is picking up a hardship of that kind, not necessarily with somebody else, but something that we might be dealing with internally. You have a lot of people today who um, are experiencing, and of course it's been in the papers and uh, very widely recognized uh, the uh, same-sex attraction. This is another type of cross that many people uh, share or have to bear. And yet, it's not so much how a person is made, how the person is born or what he's born with, uh, 
but how they handle it. And it's no different than a person that has uh, other emotional problems or disfigurement or impairment of some kind. They have to deal with it. But same-sex attraction is a mental and physical uh, cross that we all uh, have recognized. And if people would only realize that in it, they have a tremendous gift that they can give to the Lord through chastity, through remaining a chaste individual and offering the hardship that that would impose to God as a prayer. There are other similar types of things. I have a granddaughter who is severely bipolar. And it is not something to be ashamed of. It's just something that to be dealt with. And it, of course, it requires medication and uh, careful watch over uh, getting into any kind of stress or anxiety or troubles or whatever. Um, and the parents have to watch over her constantly to make sure she takes her medication. So these are things that can be offered up in a way of prayer uh, and, if necessary, looked upon as the daily cross that Christ says that we have to pick up um, in order to follow him. Let us go on. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is all the people mentioned before, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us and persevere in running the race that lies before us. Running the race, this is the same thing, or phrase that Paul uses in uh, uh, Corinthians. While keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the leader and perfecter of faith. For the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider how he endured such opposition from sinners in order that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. You have also forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons. My son, do not disdain the discipline of the Lord, or lose heart when reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son he acknowledges. And, of course, this is done in a spirit of love and is necessary because discipline in itself, when properly and adequately um, administered, is a form of love. If a person or a parent, let's say, um, lets their children run wild, as we've seen happen in many cases, uh, without discipline, that actually shows 
uh, a sign of lack of love. So endure your trials as discipline. God treats you as sons. Or daughters, of course. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are without discipline, in which all have shared, you are not sons, but bastards. Excuse the language. Beside this, we have had our earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Should we not then submit to all the more to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, what he's trying to do is get us to have a relationship with Christ, our God, through Christ, that sort of helps us to steer the course of life. And we then kind of use that as a way of working on a daily basis and putting our priorities in order, or putting everything that we do in certain priorities with God always up front. Should we not then submit all the more to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time, that is, the fathers and the people of the past. For a short time it has seemed right to them, but he does so for our benefit, that is, God or the Holy Spirit, in order that we may share his holiness. At the time, all discipline seems a cause not for joy, but for pain. And yet later, it brings the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. So, strengthen your drooping hands and your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet, that what is lame may not be dislocated, but healed. Hmm. That's why I have all these aches and pains here. I have... <laughs> now, he's going to the sort of the other side of the coin, you know. Strive for peace without, with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one be deprived of the grace of God, that no bitter root spring up and cause trouble through which many may become defiled, that no one be immoral or profane like Esau. You all know the story of Esau, the brother, the twin brother of Jacob? No. Twin brother of Isaac, excuse me. Yeah. No, twin brother of Esau, uh, Jacob. I was right the first time around. Yeah, I had to stop and think. See, the Lord was just telling me, that's not right there, fella. <laughs> Jacob and Esau were twins. And of course, 
it's important in Jewish cultures that whenever twins are born, the first one to be born is always considered the firstborn son and inherits everything. Okay? So when their mother, Rachel, Rachel, yeah, Rachel, uh, was giving birth, uh, the first one out was Esau. And so he, they put a little string around his toes or whatever, and he grew up as the firstborn son. Jacob was the other one, born minutes later. But at a given point in time, even though they were adults now, and they were um, certainly old enough to make up their own minds, there was a point where Esau didn't care about the requirements and the obligations of being a firstborn son. And at one point in time, uh, Jacob was making some kind of a dinner um, food for himself. And Esau came in and saw that and wanted a portion of it because he didn't want to bother cooking or doing something for himself. And Jacob, for some reason or other, um, was reluctant to do so. So Esau said, I will give you my whole birthright and all the privileges that go with it if you give me your dinner. But, hmm. Well, anyways, what he did was he gave away part of the Jewish culture that was extremely important and God held him responsible for it so that Jacob became the predominant messenger of God and created the twelve sons of Jacob from which the twelve tribes came and so forth. Esau was sort of shunned and put aside. We don't hear any more about him. There are a lot of theories, but nothing that we are aware of for sure. That's what it was talking about here. To be a moral or profane person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit his father's blessing, he was rejected because he found no opportunity to change his mind, even though he sought the blessing with tears. So, you have not approached that which could be touched in a blazing fire and gloomy darkness and storm. You have not reached that point. And, of course, he's talking about even today, when we are faced with trials, they are not insurmountable. God is always able to help us through them. So, we have not approached that kind of thing yet. That's what it's saying here. um, For they could not bear to hear the command. Even um, an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And that goes back to the previous story that I had read earlier here. Indeed, uh, so fearful was the spectacle that Moses said, 
I am terrified and trembling. No, you have approached Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and countless angels in festival gathering, and the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the just made perfect, and Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and the sprinkled blood that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. See, things have changed, and I think as we just mentioned here, in the old culture, the old Jewish culture of ancient times, there was no opportunity. It was hard and fast. We today have Christ and the church to allow us. In fact, the arms of the church are always open, uh, calling us back from a wayward life and welcoming us um, always. If we repent and change our ways, two requirements, and you can see why. Did you ever think about the idea of, or when you look uh, at a picture of St. Peter's uh, Cathedral in Rome about the Bernini columns that circle the plaza out front. Those columns were made to represent the arms of the church, welcoming all who come to the church, particularly in the spirit of repentance. It's interesting, there's a lot of history behind those columns, and when you're thinking about them, there's a spot right, there's a fountain and an obelisk in the middle, but there's a spot, um, well, a spot in the plaza, that if you, you see the, the columns themselves are four across, and then I don't remember how many uh, in a row. But when you stand in this particular spot, all of those four columns disappear. It's, it's amazing. The engineering, of course, they were made back in the 16th century. Um, but the, the columns are so perfectly lined up, even though they're in a semicircle, that when you stand in this spot and look, all you see is the front column. You don't see the ones, the three that are behind them. Yeah. And, and that's, oh yes, yeah, look on the, on the front of your book for next week's class. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. See the small fountain and the big fountain and the, and the obelisk in the middle? There's a spot right between those two spaces. And if you look at that, all of those columns, the second, third, and fourth column disappear. The obelisk in the center is uh, 
is from the tomb of Cleopatra. Yeah. Been there many times. Let it, let us, let us move on here. I lost my place. Can we start over? <laughs> Let's go to 25 here. See that you do not, do not reject the one who speaks. For if they did not, if they, in the past, did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much more, in our case, if we turn away from the one who warns from heaven? Remember, turning away, rejecting what God has given us through Jesus Christ. His voice shook the earth at that time. But now he has promised, I will once more shake not only earth, but heaven. That phrase, once more, points to the removal of shaken and created things, so that what is unshaken may remain. In other words, you have to kind of use the the metaphors here, or think about the metaphors here. The removal of shaken things, that is, uh, simple things, right? Simple things that we might do. So that what is shaken, unshaken that is, what remains may remain. And therefore, we who are receiving the unshakable kingdom should have gratitude with which we should offer worship pleasing to God in reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, you know, sometimes I do make light of important subjects, but we've got to really kind of put our mind to what is being said here because my personal feeling is, and that is of many Bible scholars, is that this letter to the Hebrews is probably the second most important theological book in the New Testament. Remember, the Gospels are not necessarily theological in their format. You can derive a lot of theology from them. And that is what the uh, epistles are all about. But next to Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, this book here, to me, is the most theological of all of the rest of the Old Testament, the New Testament. When I say that, what I'm saying is that what it is trying to tell us is that gets down to the real basics, the real foundation of what God, through Jesus Christ, has come to earth to tell us. Remember, uh, 
right up front, he's saying that in the Old Testament, he spoke to all of these uh, people that we've mentioned already. But in the New Testament, it is Christ alone who speaks to us. And after that, after what is written in the New Testament, what God has revealed to us through Christ in the New Testament, that's it. There was no more information about who God is or what God wants of us or what God is going to give us or has given us. There's nothing new ever brought to light since then, since the writing of the Old of the New Testament. Now, interpretations of that, yes, there are interpretations that would fill this whole room here, but nothing new in its basic understanding. So, Hebrews, to me, is something that really requires us to think deeply about how does our life measure up? What are we doing um, that might be contrary to what Christ is telling us? How can we put our life in order uh, so that when we arrive at the pearly gates, Christ says, well, welcome Joe or Mary or Pete. I've been waiting for you, so come on in and enjoy life. Or is he going to say, like we talked about last week, I don't know you, so why am I going to let you in? That's the problem that people have today. They are so busy with iPads and television and sports and all these other attractions, which are okay, I guess, to most of them in the the basics, uh, you know, but how is that filling up our life? And how is it influencing our life? And can we go on with letting these things fill up our every day and not spend time with God in Christ? And that's what he's really asking of us. And we'll see more of that when we get into the letter of James. But each of us has got to learn to spend a few minutes each day really talking to God. Not just saying prayers written by somebody else, although those are good in themselves and they have the proper place. But what God is really trying to do is to get to know us and to have us know him. Don't you think that really hurts him? Hurts who? Jesus said we don't give him more attention. Sure, sure, that's right. Um, and that's why, you know, there's a couple of places in the New Testament where he said, I don't know you, go away. Yeah. There's one friend that we do Yes. That is a very good example of good solid prayer. But the more important prayer 
is you're talking to him just as you and I are here. Yeah. That, that is real. Because it's something from your heart. And that's what he's after. Yeah. Anybody can say the Our Father, even people who aren't uh, Catholic or Christian. But it's not what you say. It's where is it coming from? And that's why just talking to God in your own way, your own voice, using your own words is far more important. Now, a lot of people will use a format of prayer, but only as a basis to then take maybe a few words from those prayers and go off onto their own. Uh, You might use them, for example, the Liturgy of the Hours is a book written for, originally written for monks and cloistered nuns who spend six periods a day in prayer. And they use these fixed prayers uh, as a basis. And then they spend time afterwards taking what these prayers have led them to think about and talk to God through that. So that's, that's just one form. You don't have to do it that way. Um, anything that's comfortable for you as, as a person. That's what God is interested in. Yeah. So we've got to start getting back to that because Right now, we are all sort of uh, on a slippery slope to damnation if we continue the way we are going. I don't want to get too preachy about that, but it's it's important, and this is what this writer is really saying to us. Chet? Oh, yes, ma'am, I didn't see you back there. Yeah, that's very good, very good point. those very few words, you know, five or ten words at most, uh, secured him. But, you see, it wasn't the words that got him into heaven. It was the change of heart. The idea that he recognized his sinfulness and was truly sorry for it. This was the what the person they call the good thief who was crucified with Christ on the cross and said, Jesus, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. Because he read the man's heart, not the words. So it's not the words, it's the mind and the heart. So really, remember prayer the definition of prayer has nothing to do with where you're sitting or standing or what position you're in. Hopefully you're not laying down and sleeping. But uh, You know, it's the lifting of the mind and the heart together. Not one or the other, but together. That is the definition of prayer. So it can be anything that you wish to give to God. And that can be, you know, a, a moment's 
statement at a traffic light. Thank God for getting me through this safely. Uh, or whatever. That kind of thing. That is prayer. But we have to spend more time than just, you know, a few words. We have to spend time really getting into the idea of conversing with God so that we give him time to speak to us. Because, remember, it was not the words necessarily that the good thief spoke to Jesus, but what we got to think about is what Jesus said back to him. This day you will be with me in paradise. Because Jesus read the man's heart, not just the words. Uh, any other questions? Yes, Gene? Yeah. You mentioned that uh, we all have an obligation to be prophets, priests, and kings. Right. So how do we do that? How do we become prophets? How do we become priests and kings? What do I do? Oh, it's a good point. Jesus, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> Jean asked me how we can be prophets, priests, and kings. And of course, that's what this article is all about. Yeah, up there. Uh, it's not that we have to go down on, on, you know, on the street corner and start preaching out loud as, you know, it used to be a common thing in New York City. It still is <laughs> occasionally. Uh, uh, but whenever we have the opportunity. And sometimes, uh, for example, uh, when you're in a restaurant, do you physically actually make the sign of the cross and pray over your food, offer the gift of, of the prayer of thanksgiving? Uh, that is one way. Yeah. When people bring up a subject that you don't agree with because it affects your faith, you really have not only an opportunity but a duty to speak up and say you don't agree with that. You might also say this is not the time to talk about it but sometime I would like to. You know. Um, because it may not be appropriate to get into a discussion at that particular time. Uh, but that gives you an opportunity. Yeah. Um, as far as priests are concerned we are all created in a way to be priests. Now what does that mean? doesn't mean that we have to get up and say mass. You know, um, those, robes, those robes wouldn't look too well on me anyway. So. Uh, but there are times when we can offer things to God. Uh, a sacrifice of some kind. An inconvenience. A giving of something. Uh, I just had somebody come to me the other day. And I, I'm on the Sun City Bowling League and he said he would have to stop bowling because uh, he had a, a very serious misfortune in finances and couldn't afford it any longer 
And without even thinking about it, I opened my big mouth and said, don't worry, I'll take care of it. (laughs) Then I thought later, Lord, I'll offer it up to you. Um, but that's, you know, those are the things that make us prophets, priests, and kings, eh, kings, I don't know. I don't think I would sit too, uh, crown would look too well up there, you know. Now, if I had hair like Eleanor over here, that might look fine, but not me, okay. Um, no, but leaders, yes. Yeah, leaders, yes, very much so. Alright, let us go on and finish chapter 13. It's a, it's primarily a conclusion, but, uh, it does have a couple interesting points. And a famous saying that is used, uh, sometimes improperly, but let's go on. Let mutual love continue. Do not neglect hospitality. For though it, so, uh, for though through him, some have unknowingly entertained angels. Mm, yeah. Be mindful of prisoners as if sharing their imprisonment. For you are also, in, you are also in the body. That is uh, sort of a prisoner in a way. Let marriage be honored among all you and the marriage bed be kept undefiled. For God will judge the immoral um, and adulterers. Let your life be free from love of money. But be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never forsake you or abandon you. See, that's what the Lord must have said through me to this guy in bowling alley. Thus we may say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can anyone do to me? So remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. For Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's a phrase that is used quite often and unfortunately sometimes used inappropriately, but Nevertheless, what it is saying is that Jesus does not change. Once he has made a statement, it remains because being God, he can see how that is going to affect others down through history. And if that is what he wants and that is what he means, then it will not change. We've heard people say, well, I'm going to try to change God's mind on a certain subject. And no, God will end up changing your mind. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teaching. It is good to have our hearts strengthened by grace and not by foods. Which do you not benefit? Who? Which? do not benefit those who live by them, that is, the earthly things. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The bodies of the animals 
whose blood the highest priest brings into the sanctuary as a sin offering, are burned outside the camp. Remember, in Jewish culture, in the centuries, uh, it was a major problem or uh, sin if you consumed any of the blood of animals. And that was more of a health uh, reason than a religious reason, but it got into uh, the it got elevated, you might say, to the level of uh, religious observance. And therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate to consecrate the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the reproach that he bore. For here we have no lasting city, that is, here on earth, we have no lasting city. But we seek the one that is to come, that is, heaven. Through him, let us continually offer God the sacrifice of praise, and that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Do not neglect to do good, to share what you have, for God is pleased by sacrifices of that kind. This whole idea is kind of summing up. And it's saying really that even though there were many, many good people throughout the Old Testament, they could never, never speak with the authority that is in Jesus Christ. Because Christ not only was perfect in all respects, but he was God himself. And therefore, he had the mind of God and spoke as God. A lot of people didn't like what he said, but that was true from all of, of all of those people that in the past, particularly the prophets. They didn't like what God said. And so almost all of them were murdered by their own people. Obey your leaders and defer to them, for they keep watch over you and will give and have you give an account that they may fulfill their task with joy and not with sorrow, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us and we are confident that we have a clear conscience. Wishing to act rightly in every respect, I especially ask for your prayers that I may be restored to you very soon. This is the same kind of closing that Paul has used in many cases, and that's why so many people feel that this was uh, written or uh, given as a sermon uh, by Paul, but others uh, have come to the idea that it was not written by Paul. It probably was a sermon given by somebody like Peter or Paul and then felt by someone else that it was good enough to be written down and disseminated to all Christians, or not just to the Hebrew converts. So that's where you get the, the sermon letter uh, conflict going back and forth. I don't think it makes much difference. Uh, I always say it doesn't make any difference who wrote it. 
if it's truthful and a good um, advice, then why not accept it? That comes to the end of our letter to the Hebrews. I hope in some ways that you've gotten something out of it um, and that it will carry with you forward in your journey of faith. Because, as I said before, to me it's probably the most, well, the second most important theological book in the New Testament that is really telling us how and why we should listen to the teachings of Christ. Now, next week, as I said earlier, we are going to begin the study of the letter of James. And you will see a number of similarities, but they are not duplications. One of the things that you should look for in James is how it compares to Hebrews. Because you will find no contradiction uh, and you will find a lot of similarities. But whereas Hebrews was directed at its original source um, to Jewish converts, James' letter is directed to all Christians. But remember, James was, at least we think, James was the bishop that remained in Jerusalem after most of the other apostles had left. And therefore, James became a very important person. He was also mentioned in uh, the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 15, after the... uh, Um, council, let's say the council of Jerusalem, you might say, over the subject of circumcision for new converts uh, from Judaism uh, or from from other religions or no religion. So James is an important person also. I'm sorry? Yes. You remember most of the other apostles spread out. You remember Christ told them, go forward, teaching all nations, baptizing them. And that's in uh, Matthew chapter 28. All right. But somebody had to stay in Jerusalem. And so James became the head of the church in Jerusalem. Okay. Remember, Paul and Peter both went to Rome eventually. We never did quite know why Peter went to Rome. Uh, but somehow or other, he was led there, and of course, that's where he died. Um, Paul went to Rome. Uh, originally, he was intended to go to Rome on his way to Spain. Unfortunately, he was in prison and went to Rome in chains. A uh, totally different reason, and his end up was the same as Peter's. But uh, we don't know exactly why Peter went to Rome. What was his reason for going there in the first place? Um, but uh, we can only speculate, and I don't like doing that. Okay. Uh, 
Any other questions? Yes. Um, in chapter 11, I guess it is, he says that um, they were sewn, sawn in two and put to death. So fourth point. I read something that said Isaiah was the one who was sawn in two. Do you know anything about that? No. Uh, I, I, I know that that is a common belief. But then again, the question is, there were three Isaiahs. So, you know, which one are they talking about? And it could have been any of them. But if it was, it was probably the first one. Yeah. Because he had more to say that was sort of against what was going on at the time than the other two. And the other two was much more hopeful in what it was being said. So, Isaiah, the first Isaiah, which goes from chapter 1 through chapter 39, um, was a little more harsh on warning the people that what was going on in their culture was not acceptable to God. Yeah. But we don't know for sure. So you got to be a little careful when you hear those kinds of statements. But that was a common thought in Jewish cultures. Yes. Yes. The comment was in chapter 11, it talks about somebody being sawed in two. Yeah. And that's in reference uh, to Isaiah. The, uh, the legend, and I use it that way because we're not sure, was that first Isaiah was sawed in two as a way of persecution. And that was not unusual uh, in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? All right, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts to sort out the things that were discussed today and how they might apply to us. Where do we stand with our relationship with you. How can we open our minds and our hearts to improve, to come closer to you, not only in our daily devotions, but in our actions and our speech? How can we voice the words that you have given us to others so that they might benefit in some way? How can we be your priests your prophet, or a leader. So we ask your blessing on our efforts towards this end. We thank you and we praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.